Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Would you open your Bibles to Romans 16, verses 21 to 24? This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you, and Quartus, the brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for feeding us. Thank you for being the God of truth. Make our hearts devoted to your truth. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in your sight. You who are a strength and our redeemer, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now we've seen as we go through this last chapter of Romans, chapter 16, that it's largely been taken up with relationships, with greetings, with compliments, with commendations. Before we saw that a couple weeks ago, the Apostle Paul greeted and commended Phoebe and Prisca and Aquila. Epinetus, Mary, Andronicus, and Junius, Stachys, Apelles, Aristobulus, Rufus, and his mother, and Narcissus, and others. In the middle of those greetings, we found the Apostle Paul stopping suddenly to issue a grave warning against, quote, those who cause dissensions and hindrances, unquote who, quote, by their smooth and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting, unquote. What did the Apostle Paul command them to do but to turn away from such men? Then he gave a warning saying that the God of peace would soon crush Satan under their feet. And so God is a God of peace. Anytime you're tempted to think that God is not a God of peace because He commanded on the day that they ate of the fruit, that Adam ate of the fruit, that he would surely die. Remember that this is the consequences of sin and the tempter. This is not what God created. Following this sober warning that's interjected in the middle of this final section of the letter, the Apostle Paul here again picks up the commendations and greetings The interesting thing here, though, is that these greetings don't come directly from Paul, but indirectly through him from his present companions. He's likely writing from Corinth, and so he has friends who want to add their greetings to what Paul is writing. The first person who wants to send his greetings is Timothy. Verse 21, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. Now, I want to go through the rest of the text and then come back to Timothy, all right? Even though it's contrary to the order of the names. He says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. Then he goes, and so do Lucius. Well, Lucius is another way of saying Luke. 
It's likely that it's the beloved physician Luke who wrote the gospel. Um, It's the same name in different languages. And then he says, and Jason and Sosiper, my kinsmen. Well, he refers to a lot of people as his kinsmen and his brothers. It's unlikely they're all blood relations. It's likely that what he means by that is that they are fellow Jews, all right? So you remember how back in the middle of the book of Romans, he would refer to his desire to see his fellow Jews saved. And so it's probably not a blood relation other than a race relation, which you could argue is a blood relation. So Lucius, Jason, Sosiper, my kinsman, And then he says, I, Tertius. Well, obviously, the Apostle Paul isn't saying that. I, Tertius. (laughs) And so you just take everything in the whole letter as being the Apostle Paul speaking. But here we know he's not because it says, I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Now, it's time for some thoughts about shorthand secretary, amuensis, editors, writers, authors, co-authors. Let's stop and think for a second about the nature of writing. Writing is done typically by a woman or a man. Uh, If you don't listen to the bookening, you'll find it fascinating. I listened to several episodes this last week, uh, and... One of the things that uh, the guys that do it, Jeremy and Nathan and uh, Jake, one of the things they were saying was they were talking about how, although in much of art and uh, uh, business, women do not compete with men equally. In other words, women don't have as many things to brag about as men do. When it comes to letters, when it comes to literature, they do. And so women write a lot, men write a lot, typically... If you're going to be published, you have to go through an editor. And so when I was a kid, my dad had a book on the shelf next to his uh, chair for quite a while. And the book was a biography of, where's Brandon? Brandon isn't here. Huh. Anyhow, Brandon is uh, a literature man. And... I wanted to tell him that this book on the shelf next to my dad's chair was the biography of, Mal- of uh, Maxwell Perkins. And have you ever heard of Maxwell? I was sure Brandon had. Well, Maxwell Perkins was a great editor in New York City. And he edited a lot of the authors uh, that you know, um, William Faulkner, guys like that. And my father, I remember, I remember my dad saying... Just very simply, he said, every man needs an editor. And so I knew growing up that my father respected the art of editing and didn't have some notion that the author was everything. Well, then when I finished the first book we did called Daddy Tried, I gave it to Nathan Albertson, and in one weekend, he did a deep dive and cut over a third of the book. I'll tell you one thing he cut was I illustrated the necessity of disciplined children when they're very young by saying that when a child is nursing and you're sitting on the sofa next to your wife and you hear her go, ow, take your finger and go whop on the head of the nursing infant. 
Don't let your baby hurt your wife. Well, Nathan said to me, I'm sorry, I didn't make the cut. I'm not willing to go into print with you saying that you did that because it'll lose readers. And I didn't complain, but I got it in here. (laughs) Think, a third of the book gets cut. That is a skill, isn't it? And so in the production of text for reading, you have many people that contribute to it. Obviously, the person that reduces it to typesetting, which in the case of our books is almost always Alex McNeely, that in itself, I remember when uh, laser printers first came out and I thought, oh, finally, I can just do what the publishers do. And so I got an HP2P and somebody reviewed it and said, this printer is a printer designed for people who like watching plate tectonics work. It could take 45 minutes for one page to print. 45 minutes. Now, think about the issue of typesetting, design, covers. What kind of paper? Is it going to be a paper that goes to pot after 80 years, or is it going to be a paper that has a high content of cotton, you know, acid-free? Then you think of the whole issue of editing, and you think of the issue of writing. You think of the issue of typing. The Apostle Paul likely had no ability to write in a legible. He was a doctor. You know how doctor's writing is, right? It's infamous. And so the Apostle Paul apparently had a handwriting that was illegible. And so, or it may be that he was somebody that liked to sit in a chair and think and speak. We don't really know, but... Always, he used an amanuensis, which is just a fancy word for uh, uh, a secretary. And here is the only place where those secretaries show up. And this one who shows up is somebody called Tertius. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, that's interesting because... Stop and think about our doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture for a second. Do you think that Tertius ever took out an illustration of flicking an infant on the head? You know the Apostle Paul is capable of using an illustration like that. You know that whoever was his amnuensis allowed through, why don't they go ahead and cut it all off? I mean... The Apostle Paul's writing can be very, very edgy, can it? And I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility that you'd have a dialogue between the secretary and the author as they're writing. And his Tertius says, Paul, you don't really want to say that. And Paul says, okay. And then Paul says, "But, but now wait a second. Did the Holy Spirit inspire you to tell me that I didn't want to say that? Now, I'm not making fun of the Holy Spirit. I'm trying to show us that the inspiration of Scripture is a very, very, um, it's complicated. One of the things liberals will say to people who say that this is inspired is they'll say, well, so apparently you hold to the dictation theory of inspiration. And what they mean by that is you completely remove the agency of the man. 
you think that the Holy Spirit simply dictated the words. Well, if the Holy Spirit dictated the words, then the Holy Spirit dictated the words to the Apostle Paul, and Paul dictated the words to Tertius, and then notice, all of a sudden, with the Apostle Paul talking, the Apostle Paul says, I, Tertius. In other words, look, the one thing that's clear from everything the Apostle Paul does, but especially the last chapter of Romans, is that the church is the church is very intimate and very um, corporate and very uh, personal work. And you can see how personal and intimate the work of the Apostle Paul is from this chapter. It just oozes people and commitments and intimacy and relationships. Now, some of you don't like relationships. Some of you would prefer to go to heaven from earth without passing through any hugs, any kisses, if you could, any handshakes. Certainly marriage. I mean, that's humiliating. But some men manage to be married without it appearing to humiliate them at all. I don't know how they do that. You say, what is he talking about? Oh, come on, men. You know how you complain about having to listen to your wife? That's humiliating. That's why you don't want to do it. You don't have any priority to listen to your wife. You say, oh, I do. I say, oh, aren't you great? We, many of us, do not appreciate relationships. Okay? We have them. We live in them. We make the best of them. But the church has never been like that. The church has always loved one another. It's a command. The whole reason everything is said in this chapter is to further the commitment and intimacy and love of the church. Why does he keep saying brothers? Is it just because that was a way that they addressed each other? And if that was just a way they addressed each other, then why was that the way they addressed each other? Well, here's an idea. They addressed each other that way to consolidate and firm up their commitment to each other. Because when you say to somebody, friend, that's one thing. When you say, brother, sister, that's a whole nother thing. It firms up the commitment and intimacy. And our problem is that we, many of us, don't want to firm up our intimacy and our commitment. The Apostle Paul is not interested in being a pastor to cold fish. This is what my father would refer to some men as. In a very soft way, he would say, he's a cold fish. What is a cold fish? A cold fish is a man that has no milk of human compassion. He might be very good at talking, at writing. He might have wonderful insights, but he has no milk of human compassion. So here's Tertius, 
and he's in yoke with the Apostle Paul. And it's an intimate yoke. My, uh, my Aunt Elaine, who lived with us when the Twin, Ta- Twin Towers World Trade Center went down, she just moved in. We're showing her the picture. She says, oh, no, four years gone like that. And we're like, what? Because people are jumping. And she's saying four years of work gone like that. Well, she had been the um, shorthand. She had been the shorthand secretary that kept track of everything that was said in the meetings between the Port Authority and Tishman Construction, the general contractor. So for years, she worked on building it. She was the one that wrote down what everybody important said. Because she was real good at shorthand. Most of you probably don't even know what shorthand is. And so she would have been, to Tishman Construction of the Port Authority, Tertius. And the relationship between Tertius, the Apostle Paul, Timothy, it's probable that there were other secretaries that work with the Apostle Paul. Stephen Baker and I have a running argument, several of them actually. Um, (laughs) And one of our running arguments is whether or not the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. And every time I slip up and, and, and indicate anything like the Apostle Paul writing Hebrews, Stephen always reminds me that I'm stupid. And he says, this is a... I keep making the same mistake, and I'm very proud to inform this congregation that there are other people who think that Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare's plays. It was the Earl of Oxford. (laughs) That's one of them. And you wouldn't believe how many of the most famous men of letters believe that Shakespeare was actually the Earl of Oxford including Joe Sobrin. Now we move over to the issue of Hebrews. At the end of Hebrews, it mentions Timothy being in prison. All right? And Stephen says it's not written by the Apostle Paul. Why? Well, look at the style of Hebrews. It's completely different than the style of Galatians. Galatians stinks of the Apostle Paul. It's intense, it's pushy, it's, it mocks, it, it, like I say, it throws everything, including the kitchen sink, into the battle. Hebrews is much more sophisticated, right? But you know, that could be the influence of an amanuensis. I mean, it, it doesn't demean, you know, there's going to be a document that comes out soon, and... I've been thinking about this document, which is written primarily by Josh Congrove and Joseph Bailey and and me, myself, and I, Andrew Dion, Brian Bailey. And as I I listened to it for six hours this week as I drove down to Spartanburg, straight through. And what I realized when I got done was two things. Number one, it basically has the same voice. Why is that? Well, because basically one person edited it. But the other thing I realized is that this document is unlike anything that that person that edited it has ever written himself. It has a completely different voice. So here's my point. 
when you read scripture, scripture is not intended to make you put the Apostle Paul up here and see him alone and, and think he's your hero and it's just the Apostle Paul. He does everything he can do to disenamor you of that concept. He does everything he can do to show you that he has the support and love of many men and women that he works with. You don't ever want to follow any leader who makes you think that he'd be doing it himself. It's just disgusting. If he is, think of how much better he would be if he allowed somebody to help him. Okay? You get it? Never forget, I don't know, 15 to 20 years ago, I read this book. And it was an excellent book. And it was a book for the time. It came out precisely at a time when this book was needed. It was well written. And it just decimated the heresy that was taking over the church at the time. And I was so proud of the man that wrote that book. Well, then a couple years ago, I found out he didn't write it. He had a guy that, that worked under him, his right-hand dude, who wrote the book. All this time, I'd thought, this man wrote the book. This man never let Tertius's name show up. Now, you all with me understand what I'm saying. I'm not naming the book. I'm not naming the man. But take a lesson from this. Americans are so infatuated with celebrity culture. It should have nothing to do with the church. Nothing. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me, isn't that weird? I, Tertius, Gaius, host to me. So you got this switch between the Apostle Paul speaking and Tertius speaking right there, quick, all right? Gaius, host to me and to the whole, whole church. So Gaius must have been a wealthy man that had a fairly large household and was able to have the Apostle Paul live with him as he, as he wrote this letter, all right? But he's not just a host to the Apostle Paul, but to the whole church. Now here, just a word on hospitality. Obviously, this has something to do with hospitality, doesn't it? Gaius had a home that was opened up for other people. Now listen. In every church, there are two, type of, two types of people. There are people who are selfish, and there are people who are generous. Okay? Are you selfish, or are you generous? And you say, well, I tithe. And I say, look, just the beginning of the church is money. And I mean, Lucas has been frantic the last few weeks to see how we'd end, and we ended up ending, oh, for heaven's sakes, he goes, we ended very well, and you should give thanks. That's the last time you'll hear that from me. Money is important, but it's much more important that you're generous with your affection. In the larger scheme of things, which has more to do with the health and love of a church, money or affection? Now, there are some people that use money, their money, to love. But are you generous or are you a miser? I mean, really, it's a question. Think about it. 
What is your natural inclination with your truck, with your car, with your house? What is your natural inclination with your children, mothers? Are you so intent in protecting your children from harm that they are not gospelers as they grow up? Do you think that God will not protect them as you use them in your neighborhood? And you say, well, I know that bad things can go on. And I say, of course, bad things can go on right now. I could fall off the edge of this ledge. I could not retire. (laughs) I mean, there's all kinds of bad things that can happen. Why is it okay for you to be stingy with your children in your home in order to protect your children? And, and why shouldn't everybody else in the church protect themselves too? And you say, well, we don't take risks with children. And I say, are you kidding me? You want me to come in your house and show you the risks that you take with your children? Come on. Churches need generous people. And those people, we need to think as we buy houses, build houses and everything, how are we building and buying houses? How are we using our property in a way that will provide for God's people? Or do we just think in terms of our responsibilities being limited to our own blood relationships? It's just like completely contrary to anything the the church is in the New Testament that the limits of our generosity and love would not extend beyond our blood relationships? That's idolatry. And don't think I don't see it. (laughs) Why do you think that I'm stupid? I see your selfishness. I see your miserliness. And it kills me. That our widows give the highest proportion of anybody in this church is disgusting. But Jesus said it happened. And I think it's wonderful for our widows. (laughs) I'd rather hang out with our widows than anybody. Because they're generous. And so I often uh, have been concerned about hospitality in this church. I remember... I had fights with both Adam and Tim Wegner when they built homes. And I mean intense fights. I remember saying to Tim Wegner, half an hour out, that's bad enough, but it's half an hour on Rockport Road. My least favorite road for 100 miles around. Every turn you think somebody's going to kill you. You know, here, 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 and then there, you know. Tim Wagner, though, was in the first service, and he told me that there is a particular youth leader that once made it out to his house from here in 14 minutes. That's the guy that I'm worried about when I'm on Rockport Road, you know? (laughs) So Adam, so I told Tim I was disgusted that he and Ann built so far out of town because I wanted them to use their house for the church. Have they used their house for the church constantly? Do they not participate in small groups, household groups? No. They have not allowed the distance. That doesn't mean you can do it. So then Adam decides he's going to do the same thing. He's building way out, and I don't even know what the name of the county is. It's somewhere 
Yeah, but I mean, it's like more TNT repairable. You know, it's, it's, it's farther out than that. And Adam looks at me and Adam says, it's only 16 minutes, I've measured it. And I look at him and I say, Adam, I don't believe you. So I measured it, it's 16 minutes. Okay, now, why would I care about that? I care about that because I want good men and good women to be close to other people so they can love them, discipline them, so they can stop in each other's houses. This is what it's saying about this man, Gaius. He's got the apostle Paul living with him. Now think about this. Say you're his wife. Do you want the apostle Paul living with you? I mean, honestly. He's much better through the text than in person. And certainly he didn't eat gluten. And he probably had a very precise diet. Poor Bree yesterday found out she can't even eat mangoes. And she was explaining to me that it's her favorite fruit. But she said, my mouth is filled with sores from eating it. So I I said, yeah, I know I can't eat it either because I'm allergic to poison ivy and it has the same oil in it. So be careful. Was the Apostle Paul a good guest or a bad one? Now, why am I bringing this up and being so specific about distances, driving, food allergies and everything? Because the church is people. And the church is intimate. And we're to do everything we can to maximize our, you ready? Investment in relationships. But that's not the word I was going to use. We are to do everything we can to maximize our risk. I mean, our risk. Now, why would I choose the word risk? Well, yesterday, Michael and I had a nasty fight. And I knew that if I didn't go to help move, that there wouldn't be a potential of fighting. (laughs) You know? And furthermore, I wouldn't get as tired. And so a lot of us just stay home, (laughs) you know? Why maximize the risk, you know? Sorry. I have to say it before communion. (laughs) And I'm being absolutely serious. I'm sorry. Okay. There's no way the Apostle Paul lived with Gaius and his family and with the other believers that were in that house without forgiveness, without irritation, without intimacy. How we've gotten to the point that the church in the Western world is opposed to intimacy. I used to think when people left here who were under discipline or who were being admonished and didn't want to hear it anymore, I used to think, well, yeah, they're going to go to a mega church where they can hide. You know what I'm saying? 
you know, the drama's too much. That's how they refer to the Holy Spirit's work in a church is drama, you know. And so, you know, they'd leave. And then I noticed they began to go to this very small church. And it just, it was like a problem to me. I kept thinking about this. If you want anonymity and no drama, why go? And then I realized that church would never violate their personal space. They were just as safe in that church as they were in the megachurch. Nobody would ever violate them. Do you think the Apostle Paul was a good guest or a bad guest? And of course, immediately you have to, def- you have to define what good and bad guest is. Do you think the Apostle Paul found every occasion he could to exhort people he wrote letters to, but was real nice in the living room? In other words, I'm trying to say to you that Gaius lived out loud, took risks, was generous emotionally, and he had to teach his wife to do that too. I mean, do you understand this? You men think, well, that's not my wife's gift. Do you know that when Annie and David moved to this city, It was not Annie's gift. Can I say that, David? I just did. Annie was, can I say it, private. Is that fair? And all of a sudden, Annie's home began to fill up with a stinking, smelly sheep, including me. And Annie always lied about it and said she was happy we were there. Where is Annie? Oh, good. She's not listening. Oh, she is listening. Okay. I mean, have all of you delighted in in Annie's care for us? It's just unbelievable. You can get rid of me any day. But how would we get rid of Annie? Now listen, this is all spawned by Gaius. Just a little name, just a little mention that Paul is living with him, just a little mention that he provides a place to the whole church. You know, it's a very small thing, isn't it? Gaius, host to me and the whole church greet you. Erastus, the city treasurer. Erastus, the state budget director. Erastus is Brian Bailey. Okay? Erastus, the city treasurer, greet you. And Cordus, the brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The brackets indicate that this is not in some of the ancient manuscripts. And so you say, well, why did they put it in? Well, they put it in because there was a habit of putting it in. You say, well, take it out if it doesn't belong. The response is, well, we don't really know whether it belongs. You say, well, then how can I trust the Bible if there are places I don't know whether or not it belongs? Well, read it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Any objections? You know, it's not like the world hangs by a thread. You say, yeah, but are there important places where we don't know? Yes, there are two of them. One, the snake handling at the end of Mark. 
The second is the woman caught in adultery. Those are the two significant ones where you have arguments about the text of Scripture, okay? In other words, even the woman caught in adultery, it's, it has what, what I would call verisimilitude. <laughs> you know, it smells like Jesus. And even the people that argue against it being in the text of Scripture say, you know, that smells like Jesus, you know? Let him who is without sin among you cast the first stone. How tender Jesus is. Now let's go back to Timothy, my fellow worker. Who is Timothy? Well, in Acts 16, we see his first appearance. We read, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy. So before Paul had contact with him, he was already a believer. He was already a disciple. The son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, so his mother was a believer and he was a believer, but his father was a Greek, which is a way of saying his dad was a Gentile, uncircumcised, okay? And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. So he had a good reputation in the church, all right? Some young men have a good reputation in the church. Some young men don't have a good reputation in the church. Timothy had a good reputation in the church, okay? Paul wanted this man to go with him. Did you notice how Matt Shiftless was just stolen from us by Andrew Dion? Any of you notice that? I don't remember the elders voting on that. It just happened. But he is shiftless. Goodbye. <laughs> His name is Shiflet, but I, I've always been tongue-tied. All right. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So likely what's happened here is that although he has a Jewish mother, he has a Gentile father, and so his father did not let his mother circumcise him. She then became a Christian, and he was uncircumcised, even though he was half Jewish, or depending on how you see it, fully Jewish, right? And so Paul does what? Now, I hope you see this is a problem. Why is it a problem? It's a problem because the book of Galatians is absolutely death on circumcising the uncircumcised in the church. And so the Apostle Paul is being inconsistent here. Can we chill out and admit it? Why did the Apostle Paul circumcise Timothy? Well, he circumcised. It tells you, what does it say? It says, be, 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 because... Did you see that? Did you read your Bibles? He circumcised him because what? Okay, I'll I'll sleep and wake up when you tell me. Read your Bibles. What does it say? Come on, say it loudly. This boggles my mind. Thank you, Jason 
for being humble enough to do what everybody else was too proud to do, which was answer the question. Because of the Jews. Now notice, first of all, it does not say because of the Jewish leaders. Okay? It says because of the Jews. In other words, the Jews would have put pressure on the Apostle Paul, and he would have lost some of his ability to minister, and certainly Timothy would have lost some of his ability to minister, because he was not circumcised. And so the Apostle Paul decides what? He decides that discretion is the better part of valor. And he just cedes the point. He gives in. And you say, well, he doesn't give in in Galatians. I say, no, he doesn't give in in Galatians. Why? Well, because that was Gettysburg. But this is just like a little skirmish in the woods. There are times where you don't make things into a principle. But little men always make everything into a principle. Little men look for principles that they can make a big deal out of, like I was with yesterday. (laughs) But I'm big. Have you ever noticed that the more fearful and insecure you are, the more principles you find to stand on and alienate yourself from your wife and your children and everybody else? Have you ever noticed that as your wife argues with you, you become more rigid? And that's because it's not really the principle that matters to you. It's your own ego. It's your own pride. It's your own stubbornness. The Apostle Paul is not stubborn, is he? He cedes the point. He circumcises Timothy. Certainly, Timothy didn't. He didn't want to be circumcised. I guarantee you that. And do you think the Apostle Paul wanted to do it? No. What we do is we try to level the ground in our ministry to remove offense. Do you hear me? Women do it. Men do it. We don't make a big deal out of our principles if it's possible to gain a hearing for the gospel. The Apostle Paul was all things to all men. Okay? Now, it surprised me this morning, thinking about it, to realize that two of the letters in the New Testament are actually written to Timothy. (laughs) They're called First and Second Timothy. Now you say, well, that's ridiculous. And I say, well, I never really think, you know, I didn't really think of them. I thought of them as being the pastoral epistles. I thought of them as being written to me. And so I never meditated on the fact that First and Second Timothy gave a wonderful periscope view into Timothy. You know, that's not the way I take them. Well, in 2 Timothy, we read Paul, this is 2 Timothy 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son. My beloved son. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. 
I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. Constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. Constantly, 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 constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. Longing to see you constantly. Longing to see you. Even as I recall your tears. So when Timothy said goodbye to Paul, he cried. Even as I remember, as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. I mean, do you see how over the top this all is? Look at the tenderness of their relationship. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I am sure that it is in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. And so, what we find out here is that the grandmother and the mother, grandmother Lois, mother Eunice, came to faith before Timothy did. And now you have three generations united in faith in Jesus Christ. So, what would we say about this? Well, the thing I want to say about this this morning is that when I was a young man and went into the ministry in Wisconsin, I had one church where three-quarters of my elders were women. And their average age was probably 80. All right? And at the other church, there was also... uh, a woman on the session of four. And also, a number of the men never came. All right? And so I began to notice that apparently in mainline religion, worship was feminine. Membership was feminine. Leadership was feminine. The only time the men came was if the men's chorus sang. They'd show up. Or if it was Easter or Christmas, or if there was a baptism or a funeral or a wedding. So that was the only time I saw a number of the men. And so I wrote an article about the issue of men in the church. And in the course of writing the article, I came across statistics that said that if children grow up in a home where the father and mother both come to church, that the chance of those children confessing faith and being a part of the church is something like 60-70%. Now these, I'm, I'm not remembering them exactly, and I'm sure they've changed since then, okay? But back then it was about 60-70%. If the mother brought the children to the church alone, the probability of those kids confessing faith and being in the church was maybe 30-40%. to 40%. If the father brought them alone, it was like 70 or 80%. Now, learn from this that God made us male and female. 
And you can curse it and fight against it and hate it all you want. But if you sit at a table in a restaurant next to two gay men or two lesbian women, there's one man and one woman. Okay? God's created order comes out of homosexuals as much as it does heterosexuals. And so we can act as if it doesn't matter whether you're male and female, that we don't have to obey our sex, we can fight against it, it's a social concept, we can do all that we want. But look at this, if you have the mother bring the children, the mother has about a 30% chance of those children having faith and being a part of the church, if the father does, it's like 60, 70, 80%. And so I took that to mean that I should do everything I could to get fathers involved in the church, you know? Seems pretty basic. Um, Then I came to Bloomington. And for 25 years, I watched Ginger and Beth. Now, I'm not mentioning some of you here who, as fathers, have done a pitiful job. We can mention Ginger, we can mention Beth, because we all see them alone, right? And you know, I used to feel so offended for Beth's children, because, I mean, Beth was so intense. She wouldn't let them do nothing. I mean, literally nothing. I used to say to Mary Lee, would she chill out? Taylor, when he was in junior high school, drew a big circle, cut it out, and then wrote chill pill and put it on Mary Lee's refrigerator. He gave her a a chill pill. And I always wanted to give Beth a chill pill. You know, let your boys be boys, for heaven's sakes. But you know something? Beth has her three sons in the church of Jesus Christ. And you watch women like Beth and Ginger... What a wonderful testimony to God's power. It keeps preachers going. You you see miracles like that every Sunday and it gives you strength to preach. And so here we have Timothy, (laughs) a root out of dry ground. His father despises religion. I mean, it doesn't say that anywhere in the text, but he's not circumcised. He doesn't show up anywhere, and the Apostle Paul doesn't say anything about his faith. He just says he's a Greek. He's a Gentile, all right? But Lois and Eunice. And so you women whose husbands are, uh, I don't know what to call them. Shall we say absent (laughs) spiritually? Don't you worry about a thing. You fight your children, you teach your children, you discipline your children, you pray for your children, and maybe someday you will have raised an Augustine as Monica did. She's the great type across church history of the effect of a godly mother on her children. Now, anything else to say about Timothy? Well, you noticed it said at the end of that text that for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. 
In 1 Timothy 5.23, we have that infamous text that Harold Wenzel loves or loved. He says, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Well, Harold Wenzel was on the board of the Billy Graham Association and was one of the trustees at Gordon-Conwell when we were students there. And while we were there, he made a rule with the board that you couldn't have any alcohol in your apartments. And remember, we were, I was 30 years old, 28, you know, and I didn't keep any alcohol, but sometimes people would bring a, a bottle of wine for dinner, you know? And so they made a rule that now alcohol would not be allowed on campus. Well, you know, given the relationships of my father, my father-in-law, Linzel, and all those people from Wheaton, I wrote him. And I I said to him, um, you know, why did you make this rule? And he sent me back a three-page letter explaining that what Paul's referring to here and what Jesus made at the wedding in Cana were not fermented You see, it was his secret handshake, okay? In other words, it's just bogus. This is completely ridiculous. I didn't respond to him. I mean, how do you argue with someone that's gone flipping out of his mind, you know? Uh, Usually, we save the best wine for later, or no, Usually the best wine is served first, and we save the last. You remember that at the wedding? Why do they serve the best wine first? Well, because after you've had a drink or two, you can't tell how good it is. I mean, all right, I'll get off my high horse about this. No longer drink water exclusively. Use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, I want to say that what the Apostle Paul is doing is not purely... Uh, medication, it's also psychotropic. Because I think Timothy was timid, and timid people often are hypochondriacs. He has frequent ailments. Are we absolutely certain that all those ailments were legit? No. And so Paul says, you know, maybe if he drinks a little bit, he'll forget all his troubles. No, I'm absolutely serious. Look at Proverbs and what it says about wine. Let's not be prudes. That's not biblical. Now, that doesn't mean that we should make a decision that we're going to drown all our problems with alcohol. But my dad used to love pointing out that the Southern Baptists had the highest level of teetotaling of any denomination in the country and also the highest level of alcohol abuse whereas Jews had the highest consumption and the lowest level of alcohol abuse. And so being Pharisees is not the right way. You don't put up fences that God has not erected. What's condemned in Scripture is the love of alcohol, okay, and drunkenness. And so Timothy obviously did have some kind of problem. You might want to say it's simply his body is weak. He has a lot of weaknesses in his body. But have you noticed that people that have a lot of weaknesses in their body often have a lot of weaknesses in their character or in their, you know what I'm saying? It's like you can't really separate the body and the mind and the heart the way we want to do it, okay? 
Then in 1 Timothy 4, he says, let one know, no one look down on your youthfulness. And so Timothy would, would tend to be intimidated by people who would say, you know, what do you know? You're young. You're wet behind the ears. And so the Apostle Paul said to him, let no one look down on your youthfulness. And then in 1 Corinthians 16, we read, he says, now if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he's doing the Lord's work. Again, this shows that Timothy is timid and that he's, he's in danger of having that nasty church in Corinth eat him alive. Don't, don't scare him. Don't, don't treat him in a way that makes him fearful to be among you, right? That's what he's saying. And then he says, let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace. And so this is the character of Timothy. He's somebody who is scared. He has a lot of ailments. He needs to be told to not let people despise him for youth. The churches need to be told to not eat him alive. Have any of you ever heard of churches that are preacher killers? There are some churches among pastors. We know what they are. We know what they are. And apparently Corinth had that aspect. It was somewhat like that. And and clearly Philippians was the opposite, Philippi. Because the Apostle Paul's trust of the Philippians is so intense. And so here's Timothy. He's going around. He's working right next to the Apostle Paul. He goes from church to church to church. Letter after letter written by the Apostle Paul comes from Paul and Timothy. Timothy is not the Apostle. But the letter comes from both Paul and Timothy. In in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, For this reason I have sent to you, Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. What a wonderful statement about Timothy. Philippians 2, it says, For I have no one else of kindred spirit. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Ah, isn't that sweet? Isn't that sweet? For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his, this is Timothy, you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Some of you are young. And you have your life in front of you. And you know what I'm going to say next, Asher. There's no higher aspiration you could have than to serve the church the way your father does, Asher. I'm only saying you because you're young enough that it's not embarrassing you, whereas if I named some of the guys in high school and college, they'd be embarrassed. 
You know, from the time I was little, I wanted to be my daddy. It's just all I wanted. I wanted to do the work he did. Is that not what we see from Jesus? Are we so bent on egalitarianism that we can't see the love of the Son for the Father in the Gospel of John? And see how Jesus lived to do his Father's work. We need to raise up men who will put Jesus first and not themselves. The church has such a paucity of men like that. And so you young men sitting there in your chairs right now, you think, what do I want to be and to do when I grow up? Because the church needs shepherds. You say, well, I could never preach. And I say, can you be an elder? Many years ago, well, maybe 10, 12, our family took a trip up to the Boundary Waters. And I'd been there a lot of times. But when I got to the Boundary Waters, it was like, it was unbelievable. The entire forests were wiped out. They were all knocked over. And I hadn't heard about it, but apparently they had this huge windstorm that just came through and knocked down all the deadwood. They called the windstorm COVID. I mean, think about it, guys. Think about it. This stuff happens, and it cleans things up. We call them wildfires. So anyhow, we're up there, and trees, all of them are knocked over. All of them are knocked over. Okay? Now, what does this have to do with young men who are sons to their father, the Apostle Paul, and want to do his work? Because that's what Timothy is. Well, you say you don't preach, right? You say you could never preach, right? Can you be a shepherd? Do you realize the windstorm that took us all down when Adam Spadey died? It just decimated us as a church. We're still trying to get over it. Can you stand in Adam's place? You say, well, I'm not a doctor. Adam didn't have to be a doctor. He loved the church. You know, I don't want to guilt trip any of you whose calling isn't to the ministry, whose calling isn't to be an elder. But Paul wanted to take Timothy with him. And the church is not going to be protected by older men not calling. You know, when my dad was 13 years old at 10th Presbyterian, they had a pastor named Donald Gray Barnhouse. Any of you heard of Donald Gray Barnhouse? And do you know what Donald Gray Barnhouse did to my dad when he was 13, I think? He said to him one day, his dad left church. He said, by the way, he said, at two o'clock this afternoon, you're to be back here with a Bible study prepared on some text of scripture, and you're going to give that Bible study on the radio program. (laughs) The Apostle Paul was making sons of the faith who would carry on his work constantly. And I want to end by reading... um, the last thing he ever wrote that we have a record of. 
And I want you to feel the relationships and the commitments and the fatherhood and the sonship because the church is nothing if we aren't relationships. The church is nothing if we aren't intimacy and commitment that is one-to-one, two-to-two. And he writes this. He says this to Timothy. He's writing Timothy, and he says, I solemnly charge you. Now, Timothy's his son. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, (laughs) I love that, but you (laughs) be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, son, finish your work. (laughs) For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to you on that day. And not only to me, I love this, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He's so generous. He's so open. It's not about him. He's just trying to motivate Timothy. Now listen to me. Some of you who are cynical are thinking, I'm reading this because I'm about to leave this church. Trust me. It was accidental. We're at the end of Romans, at the end of my time here. Okay? This is not about me. I am not the Apostle Paul. Did you all hear me? But listen to the Apostle Paul. He says, make every effort to come to me soon. Does that sound like he loved Timothy? Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. Ugh. Who is Demas? I don't know. Uh, Well, I know he deserted him. That's who Demas is. (laughs) That's all we know. Demas has deserted me because he loved this present world. He's gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you. So this, we know that, you know, there's been a restoration. For he is useful to me for service. You know, helpful, useful. Can we use very common words? He's useful, he's helpful. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus, when you come, bring the cloak, which I left at Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith. Did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Listen, people. 
there are many men who have done this church much harm. Many men. And I'm not naming one of them here. But don't you ever think that this has changed in church history. It has never changed. And the Lord will repay them. Then he adds, be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. Remember, these are the last couple of sentences of his last writing at the end of his life, okay? He then writes, at my first defense, no one supported me. I mean, come on, people. No one. But all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me. (laughs) You know... I get such a kick out of that. You know, whack-a-mole. <laughs> you know, whack-a-mole, whack-a-mole, whack. But the Lord stood with me. I know it's, it, I don't know how to describe why I think it's funny. But it's like, Jesus is with me. You know, it's like, I wasn't alone. Jesus stood with me. And strengthen me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet. Greet. Prisca. There she is again. Listed first ahead of her husband. Oh my goodness, they're not patriarchal, are they? Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you also, Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. The Lord be with your spirit, grace with you. Amen. I've said it a thousand times. Don't you love the Apostle Paul? Right? You do. Don't you love Timothy? You can grow up to be a Timothy. Make that your aspiration. Why, why go after money when you can be a Timothy? You know? If the elders would come, please. Please. 